Well, that should have woken everyone up. <laughs> With uh, Father's Day behind us and the uh, summer barbecue season having officially arrived, the following story is told uh, for your amusement or for your self-benefit or take it for whatever it's worth. This is the definition of an outdoor barbecue because it's the only type of cooking a real man will do. When a man volunteers to do such cooking, the following chain of events is put into motion. Number one, the woman goes to the store. Number two, the woman fixes the salad, vegetables, and the dessert. Number three, the woman prepares the meat for cooking, places it on a long tray, with the necessary cooking utensils and takes it to the man who is lounging beside the grill drinking his soda. I'm going slow so he can take notes. Number four, the man places the meat on the grill. Number five, the woman goes inside to set the table and check the vegetables. Number six, the woman comes out to tell the man that the meat is now burning. The man then takes the meat off the grill and hands it to the woman. The woman then prepares the plates and brings them to the table. After eating, the woman clears the table and does the dishes. Number 10, the man asks the woman how she enjoyed her night off. And upon seeing her annoyed reaction, concludes that there's just no pleasing some women. I like that. So if you need a copy of that or if you want to get some notes later, we'll make them available. Sometimes it's not as hard as we make it out to be when it comes to pleasing others, especially when it comes to pleasing God. And in our ongoing uh, study of messages entitled Living Life in Light of Eternity, we've come to an event that was much anticipated throughout all of Jewish history. It was that period of time when God's Savior, His Redeemer, would establish God's kingdom upon this earth. It was a concept that was captured by Jesus in His uh, model prayer to His disciples when He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. That said, turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 20, where we're going to look at verses 1 through 15, which is the chapter, where we'll gain some additional insight as to what is involved in the 1,000-year reign of Christ upon this earth. Revelation chapter 20, and we'll start with verse 1, where we read these words. And John writes, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he, and he had laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time, 
And uh, we read, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the beloved saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. For from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, again, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In this passage, you'll notice the word back in verse 1, and indicates or introduces to us this, this wonderful period of time that we commonly refer to as the, the millennium. And the word millennium comes from the Latin word, which means 1,000. So no matter how you slice it or you look at it, we're being introduced to a period of time that is 1,000 years in length. And to emphasize this point, uh, there are at least six different references, if you want to underline them or jot them down, as I did when I went through to study the passage, that in verse 2 you'll see that he emphasizes that Satan will be bound for 1,000 years. In verse 3 that the thousand years were completed and after these things, uh, the devil must be released for a short period of time. We see in verse four, I saw thrones and they sat upon them. And it goes on to talk about at the end of that verse, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, Verse five, we see the same thing. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Number six, we see the same thing again. And in verse seven, So there's a strong emphasis here on this period of time that is for 1,000 years. And what's interesting is that there are those who struggle with this whole idea that Jesus is going to establish his earthly kingdom for a 1,000-year period of time. But all throughout the Old Testament, the Jews were looking forward to that. In fact, that was the source of some of their greatest confusion is that they believed that when the Messiah, Savior, Redeemer would come, he would immediately establish this 1,000-year period of time. And so that's why they argued about, you know, who was going to sit at the right, who was going to sit at the left, what was going to be my 
position in the kingdom? You know, what, you know, what Jesus, where, where, you know, where do I fit into your plans, to your structure, uh, to your political and your economic system? And so they understood that, you know, there was that day that was coming. Jesus understood it because he said that that day would be here when God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we see this, and it's fascinating to me that there's so much debate about this thousand-year period of time where in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you remember about the rapture of the church, that's the only place in all of Scripture that one word caught up or, or to be raptured in, in Latin, to be caught up with him in the air, that's the only place in all of the Bible that we find that word. And people, you know, don't have a problem with, the, with the, uh, the doctrine of the rapture. And so when it comes to the millennium, you know, we certainly shouldn't have a problem with that either. Because even if he only mentions it at one time, that there's a thousand year period of time, how much more so to emphasize it six different times, that this is a literal thousand year period of time. And, you know, and that's what this passage uh, deals with, and this is what we're going to take a look at. So in order to follow it better, maybe to be a little more helpful, we're going to take a look at it in an outline form that I've put together, if you want to follow along. Uh, Number one, we're introduced in verses one through three to what I'll call the binding of Satan. And we see that we're told that an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand... And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. What a wonderful and encouraging truth is laid out before us. That there will come a day when Satan will no longer be able to, he will no longer be in a position to, to devour, to deceive, or to destroy The Bible clearly teaches and reveals that there is indeed an enemy of our souls who we dare not take lightly or flippantly. And if you'll notice in verse 1, there's the revelation of Satan's destiny. And it indicates that God doesn't take him lightly either. You know, turn with me in the following following passage just to get uh, maybe a better feel for the fact that, you know what, Satan is a real personality. Jesus warns of his uh, power. He warns of, uh, warns of his deceptive ability. He says that he is a murderer and that he is a liar from the very beginning. And, in first, and, and when we look at this um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we see basically what his job description is, which is a couple books to your left. He says, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, and never misunderstand this, our enemy... The enemy of our soul, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so basically he's on a mission. And he's on a mission to look for believers who are not walking with the Lord, who are weak in their faith, who don't spend time in the word. And if you'll recall when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, each and every time that he was tempted... He would answer the assaults of the enemy with an answer from the word of God. And so we need to be immersed in the word of God so that when we are attacked by our enemy, when he does seek us out to destroy us, there's nothing new under the sun. There's no temptation that will overcome you that is not common to man, according to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. 
So what you'll struggle with, someone else has already struggled with, and somebody will struggle with. And the reality of it is, is that we need to be better prepared for those days where we are attacked by our enemy. He is our adversary. He prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And there's nothing more tragic to me than seeing God's people being chewed up and spit out by the devil when we've got everything that we need to be able to answer his assault in the word of God. Not in our own strength, not in our own power, but according to God's word, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And again, I emphasize and continue to emphasize how much time do you spend in the word of God? How much time do you spend studying scripture? How much time do you spend meditating on it? More importantly, even than that, memorizing it so that when those moments come up, you can recognize and discern what is being said that is wrong versus right, evil versus good, of God or of the devil, from heaven or from the pit of hell. We need to be able to discern these things, and there's only one way we can do it, and we've got to get into the Word of God. And so he's saying, be of sober spirit. He's saying, be alert. Be spiritually alert. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. He is not our friend. He is not our buddy. He is not our brother, as Jesus identifies himself in our life. A friend wouldn't do this. A brother, you know, wouldn't keep you out of the loop, would not, you know, keep a secret from you. You know, God reveals all these things to us. Other passages speak of his blind, you know, of his blinding of unbelievers and attempts to deceive. Um, if you look at, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the works of the devil is to deceive and to destroy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of the big problems with the Corinthian church was that they were being deceived on a regular basis by Satan and they were falling for it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I mean, how many of you have had people in your life, and for, it seems like forever, you have been trying to share the simple truth of the gospel with them, that none of us are righteous, no, not one, We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Um, that our only hope is that God loves us anyway. And he sent Christ into the world to die on the cross. That if you would believe that he died on the cross for your sins and believe that he rose again from the dead and that you would trust in him as your savior, the Bible says you will not perish but have everlasting life. And for years you've shared that message in every different manner and form and way you can think of you try to be as creative as possible but at the end of the day the message is the message it's very simple that jesus christ died on the cross according to the scriptures that he rose again according to the scriptures and if you want to be right with god you have to believe what god says and even that is according to the scriptures and you share with people and, and they look at you like i don't get it I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. And, and the reason they don't understand what we're saying is because we're given the answer right here. Because they are deceived. They are, they are blinded by our adversary who does not want people to hear this message. The devil doesn't want 
people to hear that it's God's will that you repent of sin. The devil doesn't want people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because the devil doesn't want God getting and receiving all the glory. The devil doesn't want our Lord being worshipped and praised for what he has done in our life. And so we look at this and he says that, you know, that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. If you're here today and you're one of those people that go, you know, I don't get it. Yeah, I've heard that all before and I can repeat it and I can tell other people about it. Then, then I would just encourage you to pray that God would lift those blinders from your eyes so that you can see the glory of Christ. I would just encourage those of you who have friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and, and people in your life that are blinded by Satan that God would, would uh, put a hedge of protection around them and remove those blinders so that they can see Jesus for who he truly is. Because there is a spiritual battle that's taking place. The spiritual warfare is relentless and it won't give up. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, it says, For such men are false apostles and deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They are distorting the gospel and trying to get people to believe things that weren't true, to believe things that cannot save them from the wrath and the judgment of God. And it goes on to say, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. And keep that in mind when we look at the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ, that those who reject Christ will be judged according to their deeds. So as we look at this, we see that this is the case. In verse, uh, in verse 2, going back to our, our, um, our passage in Revelation chapter 20, in verse 2, we see that, you know, we see God giving Satan recognition for his activities, for his activities during the great tribulation time. It says that, and he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who was the devil and the Satan and bound him for a thousand years. You know, his activities during the great tribulation, it's like you ask the question, well, why bind him now for a thousand years? What harm has he done? And the answer is given to us very clearly. It is the dragon or the devil who gives the beast his power. We're told in Revelation 13, 12, who gives the beast his power, his throne, and his great authority, meaning that the devil had been given control of the political system. He also deceives the nations by deceiving, its, by deceiving her leaders into rebelling against God. And lastly, the names, the devil and Satan, identify him as a slanderer who accuses us believers before the throne room of God night and day. He accuses us before God. And I don't know, maybe it's just some of my uh, uh, BC days, but I kind of like the word picture where it says that, and, and the angel took hold of him. I mean, you can just kind of get the picture of him, just kind of jacking him up and grabbing him by the lapel, you know, and just he took hold of him and he just said, hey, you know what, we got a plan for you. And he just laid hold of him, and he, you know, and he has this big chain. I, I kind of look at it like, you know, tying him up with duct tape. <laughs> 
kind of make it a little more personal, just chain him up, tie him with duct tape, and he just, you know, he just got him in this position where he just, you know, and then bound him for a thousand years. You know, can you imagine for a thousand years he just binds Satan? And uh, what's, what was great to me as I was reading through this, here, here's our accuser who night and day accuses us before God. And now for a thousand years, notice what it goes on to say, and he threw him into the abyss. It says, and he, shut, and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he should no longer deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short period of time. He threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him so he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were up. And you know, it, it was great because you know, you're going through this and you're saying, man, this is great to lay hold of him. You know, it just conveys the idea of, you know what, we got you. And we've had enough of you to bind him with this great chain and to cast him into this pit and, and to think about just shutting him up and to shutting this pit up where, you know what, he can accuse all he wants, but no one's going to hear a thing that he has to say. And that's just, ah, oh, it's just a beautiful word picture of how, you know, God's just in total control of everything. Since the fall of, uh, of man, Satan has been our accuser, and now there's, he's got nothing to say. And so when we look at this, you know, God sets his seal on him. You know, he's doomed and he's waiting for final, the execution of final judgment. The question is, why does God bind Satan for a thousand years? And we're told in verse 3, so that during those thousand years, he should not deceive the, the nations any longer. He can do no more harm, no more damage. The verse indicates that not all the nations uh, were destroyed at Armageddon, that only the kings and the armies were, and the nations will continue to exist during the Lord's earthly kingdom, <clears throat> Zechariah 14, 16. And lastly, as it relates to the binding of Satan in verses 1 through 3, notice that Satan will be released at a certain period of time. And when I read that, I thought... How can I better understand this? And there were two key words that jumped out as I considered the release of Satan, who, by the way, was tortured night and day in this lake of fire and yet continued to exist. There's two words. It said, one was this. <clears throat> he would, um, and it says, a thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short period of time. It, it, right before that, it says in verse 3, until... He would be held until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released, but only for a short period of time. And what it indicates to me, and I hope also to you, and the comfort is this, that God is in total control of everything, including our adversary, the devil. It must be this way because God says so. Why does Jesus have to die on the cross? Because it must be this way according to Scripture. Why does Jesus have to be raised from the dead? Because it must be this way according to Scripture. Why must I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin? Because it must be this way, because this is God's way. 
And there is no other way. That's just the way that it is. And it must be this way. How long is he going to be out? Just for a short period of time. Until what? Until God is done using him for God's purposes. Man, that is a comfort to me. Because as we read through scripture, we learn over and over again, there is nothing that can happen to God's people. There is nothing that can happen, period, without God actively being involved in every detail. Nothing. David's life, Daniel's life, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's life, the Apostle Paul's life, Peter's life, your life, my life. The comfort that I get is knowing that there's nothing that can, that can take place in my life that isn't allowed by God for his purposes and for his glory. How long must we suffer until God says it's enough? Revelation 6, how much longer do we have to wait, God, for you to avenge our deaths as we were martyred during the great tribulation period of time for not taking the mark of the beast, for being obedient to you and your calling in our life? How much longer do we have to wait for you to, to, to uh, make things right? Just a little while longer. But it must be this way because I got it all under control. I got a plan. And the plan hasn't come to fruition if you're in the middle of God's plan and you're not really happy with his timing, the best way I can put this is this. Get used to it. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Just get used to it. Because, you know what? He's God and we're not. And so if he's got you waiting, then wait. Learn to wait better. That's what we've done. It's like, oh, blood again this week, hospital trip again this week. Uh, you know what? Here's, here's the drill. Bring my Bible, bring this notebook, bring that one, bring some pens, you know, and then I'm learning. I forgot some stuff, and I add it to the next list for the next time. And it's like, you know what? If I got to be there, then make the most of the time. It's time management. And you know what? And bring those CDs and bring the extra ones because there's been people expressing interest, and we'll just set up another table at the end of the bed, and, you know, and... Here we go again. And so it's just a question of, hey, you know, we, we have to adjust to God's way of thinking and his timing. He isn't going to adjust to us. So don't get so frustrated. Just adjust to God's way of thinking, God's way of doing things, and God's plan and purpose for your life situation and guess what? And, and you're going to have a peace that you never thought was possible. That one that surpasses all understanding. That one that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So if you're a little bit rattled right now by God's timing, just chill out and trust God. Relax. Otherwise, you end up pulling all your hair out. <laughs> Number two. Let's look at the blessings that believers will experience during this thousand-year reign on, on earth in verses 4 through 6. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for 1,000 years. You know, the responsibility that we see first and foremost is the responsibility for judgment. Notice he said, I saw thrones. And anytime you see the word throne, it indicates that there's judgment that's taking place. He says, I saw thrones. And they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. You know, and the focus of judgment in Revelation 20 is the giving of rewards as it has to do with Old Testament saints, according to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You know, Jewish believers of the past who are resurrected at the end of the tribulation period, and all tribulation believers are at this time, they're given their rewards. If you remember from our series on rewards the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll notice that, you know, there's a time where God's people, those of the church age, will be, you know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that will be caught up with him. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up with him in the air. And during this tribulation period of time, this seven-year period of time, that, you know, will appear before the, the, great, the uh, judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, so that we will be rewarded according to how we lived our lives and how we accomplished the things that God had uh, for us to do before the foundation of the world. And we went into great depth the last two times we met about that. Well, here we're talking about Old Testament saints, and they will be given this period of time, they will be given their rewards for the same basis of how they were faithful to God in the period of time in which they lived. And judgments are the ones who are sitting on the throne. And it says, And I saw the thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped. So remember, the whole reason that they died was because they maintained their, uh, their faith in the Lord during this tribulation period of time. said so you either you know, reject Jesus Christ or you, know, you take the mark of the beast. If you take the mark of the beast, you'll be able to conduct life as, as you know it. You'll be able to buy and sell commerce and continue to, you know, to, to live the, the, the life, the comfortable life that you know. And so some of the other blessings that stand out in this, in this passage from verse 4 are, you know, at first of all, there's the resurrection of believers. Jesus, as we saw, was the first fruit and that we will follow him. So we went into great detail in a previous message about the resurrection of believers. So we saw that as a great blessing. Uh, there's also the resurrection of unbelievers. And in verse 5, by way of contrast, we realize that we see a great day of blessing coming for us as God's people and that we will enjoy and fellowship with the Lord for a period of a thousand years that separates the two resurrections. So for those of us who are in Christ, we will be alive during that period of time. We will, uh, as, as we're told, we will rule and reign with him. And uh, that blessing has to do with the word reign has to do with a political reign. If you look at verse 4 at the end, it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
Now turn with me to Luke chapter 19, and we'll look at a parable that will help put this thing together so that we'll see what Jesus was referring to now that we have this revelation passage to tie to it. In Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 11, Jesus tells Uh, Jesus tells the following story. It says, And while they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed, here we go again, that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So what were we talking about again? Well, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom and it was going to be, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and here we go. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called out ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas, or ten pounds. And he said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a a delegation after him, saying, "Uh, we don't want this man to reign over us. And it came about that when he returned and after receiving the kingdom, he ordered the slaves to whom he had given the money. He called to him in order that he might know what business had been done during this period of time. So, and and the first appeared and said, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little, in a very little thing, be in authority over ten cities." And the second came, saying, Your mina master has made five five minas. And he said to him also, You are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, behold your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you, being that you are an exacting man, and you take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you don't sow. And he said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I didn't lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put the money in a bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. And he said to the bystanders, take the money away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said, but he already has 10. And he said, I tell you that to everyone who has been given, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and I will slay them in your presence. So this is a great parable to tie in what we've been discussing the last couple of messages as it has to do with rewards and what we're talking about in Revelation chapter 20 where we're talking about reigning with him. You'll notice that obedience is what's le- what led to the reward. One was given 10, one was given 5, one was given 1. It wasn't the amount that they were given, it was whether they were obedient to use what God has given them towards God's purposes and for his kingdom's sake. And so when they were rewarded, he said, you know what, you'll be in charge of 10 cities, and you'll be in charge of five cities, and you'll be in charge of one city. And so as we put all of these things together, you ask the question, well, what will we be doing during this thousand-year reign of Christ here on this earth? Well, we have a good hint right from these passages that to reign with him mean that somehow or another that Jesus will give us responsibilities as his people in order to accomplish his purposes even during this thousand-year period of time in which he will reign on this earth. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but you and I are being trained today for what responsibilities that we will have 
during that earthly kingdom that Christ will establish. Sometimes we lose sight of that. We get so bogged down in the details of today and overwhelmed with the details of today that we get frustrated and it's like, is it all worth it? And the question that you have to ask yourself is, it is if you believe God's word. Is it worth it? Well, the guy who was given 10 minus thought it was worth investing it for his master's purposes. The guy who was given five thought it was worth you know, investing it for God's purposes or his master's purposes. The one who was given one said, hey, you know what? It's not worth it. But on the other side is we also know that that one, if we can put it into this context, that that one person still is a believer from a biblical definition of it is that here is this man who had come to faith and trust in Christ to kind of put all this together who yet was disobedient to what God had called him to do, which was to invest that one mina in the kingdom of God. That one was taken from him. That's why I believe that during that judgment seat of Christ, you know, when we stand as a believer before the Lord one day, that there will be great disappointment in the lives of many of us who saw what we could have had if we had only trusted God and done what he had told us to do. And you'll notice there's the difference between those who are, you know, God's people and those who aren't. In the contrast in verse 27 of Luke 19 is, but these enemies of mine. Now these were those who did not accept him as their ruler. And there's a difference between not accepting Christ as our savior and being disobedient to his calling in our life as far as using the gifts that he has given us versus those who don't accept his rule in their life, period. And so we don't even talk about whether they're going to be obedient to the gifts that God's given them because they don't recognize him as the giver of all gifts. And so we're going to talk some more about that in the Revelation passage, but don't get confused on that. we got two very distinct groups of people those who reject Jesus Christ and his claims to, to, to be the savior of the world and those who accept Jesus Christ and also are obedient in our walk with God because we are living to, uh, you know, to earn those rewards that we can, we can earn or those of us who have trusted in Christ. And frankly, we haven't even thought about earning rewards because we're just too busy selfishly living our own life and doing what we want to do when we want to do it. And so, you know, there's a whole bunch of different things to consider here, but that's what I want to show you, at least from this standpoint, that during that thousand-year period of time, we will be busy. It's not going to be boring. So all those cartoons that we talk about, you know, walking across the street, getting hit by the bus, next thing you know, you're floating on a cloud with some type of musical instrument you've never seen in your life. Trying to figure out how it goes and how it works and how to play it. And just going, man, if this is what heaven's all about, this is boring. You know what? It's not going to be boring. Because we already talked about there's a temporary heaven where if we would die today, we're absent from the Lord. I'm absent from the body, present with the Lord, we would be with him. And there's also that day comes where Jesus is going to establish his kingdom here on this earth. I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's going to be a thousand year period of time where we rule and reign with him. And we're going to be far from being bored. The question will be, what is it that you'll be doing during that thousand years? 
And it will be based on what you did now. It's going to be based on what you did now. How's that reward looking for, to you, you know? How's that day look? I mean, it's, it's very serious. How, how does that day stacking up? How is that day stacking up for you? Are you the 10 minor guy, woman, 5 minor woman or guy? The 1 minor? Frankly, I was just too busy doing my own thing, and so I made up this really stupid excuse. And so I realize it's not holding water and eh, I'm, out of, I'm out of ideas. It's like, are you going to be obedient? Because that's how God will decide what it is that you're going to do for his kingdom's sake. Number three, the third truth is revealed. And back in, in Revelation chapter uh, 20, starting with verse 7, notice this. And when the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison. Now, there's people that have asked me, well, is there time in heaven? Well, you know, obviously, we've got a very specific period of time that we're dealing with here. So we know this, there's time on earth, and this thousand years is over. And so everyone will know that it's over, okay? End of the thousand years. And when the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, symbolic names for just all the nations of the world, to gather them together for the, the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city, which is Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and destroyed them. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented night and day forever and ever. Now stop and think about this. This shows the depth of the depravity of man and the serious nature of sin. For a thousand years, man will have lived in the perfect environment, governed by the perfect ruler. Man will have experienced everything from a positive viewpoint that he could have ever imagined, and yet it wasn't good enough. And the reason is very clear. Why not? Because the problem is not external. The problem is not our environment. The problem is not our economy. The problem is not uh, our political systems. The problem is the heart of man. Wicked, deceitful, willful, rebellious. That's why in order to find, you know, true forgiveness from God, man must believe in his heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Think about this. A perfect environment. And it didn't take but that for Satan to be let loose and to start, and he picked right up on where he left off. And it tells you a lot about the depravity of Satan as well, because you know what? He cannot be rehabilitated. He can't be cured. After a thousand years of torment, not only is there no sign of remorse or repentance, but he goes right back 
to what his nature dictates that he will do, and he immediately deceives the nations. And this deception is directed toward those who survived the tribulation and entered the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. While the outward obedience and submission is required during the millennial reign of Christ, inward faith and commitment is another question. And I thought about that because it's applicable to today. There are going to be people who live during the millennium who outwardly will submit to the reign of Christ. They'll They'll do whatever they're told to do. But in their hearts, they're far from God. It's like people today who play church. You know, you're in church, but you're not in Christ. You know, you go through the externals, but your heart's not really right with God. You know, you've never really come to repent of your sin. You've never really been broken for sin. You've never come to understand your great need for God's forgiveness. And so you're continuing to pursue these things externally and finding that they're just not doing the trick. And it's no different than during the millennium where people are going to have a perfect environment, a perfect government, perfect political system. I mean, just everything is perfect. And yet, you know what? But the heart of man is wicked and deceitful above all else. And so God is showing one last time that, you know what? Unless there's a heart transplant, that man will never be right with God. And that's why in verse 9 he says, and he destroys them all. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and he surrounded the camp of the saints and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The destiny of those who reject Christ is very clear. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. For a thousand years, just so we get this straight, for a thousand years they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. At the end of the thousand years, they still existed, they still were in torment, and now they would be in torment for all of eternity. Those bodies that they had been given will be bodies that will withstand eternal torment. They'll never be destroyed, but they'll always be tormented day in and day day out forever. Which brings us to one last truth, and that's the books that will judge the dead. Notice verse 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne. Again, remember we talked about the word throne has to do with the fact that there would be judgment. There are several things that are worth noting about the throne and the one who sits on it. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. Now, the word great has to do with uh, the symbolism of what this judgment is all about. It isn't a great white throne in that it's this giant, you know, gigantic great throne. It has to do with the symbolic nature of what's going to take place in that judgment. That, That throne in chapter 20 appears to be a special place where judgment of unbelievers is to take place. The word refers to the issues at hand. And he says that the, and there's this great white throne and him who sat upon it. Notice this, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. The righteousness and holiness of God. One day unbelievers will stand before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ and they'll see Jesus for who he really is. 
all judgment has been given to him. And they'll stand before him and realize how perfect and holy he is. That his judgment will be right and fair and just. And that there'll be nothing that anybody could ever say. His awesome presence is seen in that every, everything and everybody wants to flee from his, his presence, but there is no place to be found. It says, and I saw the dead. It says, the great and the small standing before the Lord. It doesn't matter what you accomplish in this lifetime. It doesn't matter how many titles that you have. It doesn't matter how much money that you made. It doesn't matter how your name is recognized throughout all of human history. The Bible says the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. For those who stand before the Lord one day, and I can't imagine anybody's actually going to open their mouth to try to defend themselves, but should they try to do that, and they start off with what we hear people say all the time, but, but I'm a pretty good person, they will be judged according to their deeds. How long will it take in that book of deeds of your life before you recognized how guilty you were before God? Page one. Two, 222,647. What page will it be before you finally go, man, I'm guilty as charged. Be judged according to their deeds. Now, one thing that we know from Scripture is that how unbelievers live their life is also as important as how believers live their life. As a believer, we'll be judged for how we lived our life in order to earn rewards that God has for us. And as we've already mentioned in several different occasions, for an unbeliever, how you live your life will determine how severely you're punished for all of eternity. God is a just God. And there are people who say, well, that's not fair that this person who would go and slaughter a million, five million people would go to hell and suffer. And this person, this person's only transgression against God is, is that they just refuse to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to get into the kingdom of God. As if that's some kind of a minimal transgression. And God goes, oh, no, I'll take that all into consideration. Because your name's not written in the book of life, you're lost anyway, but the deeds and how you lived your life, God will use to determine what it is that he is going to do as far as how he will punish you. Every one of them stood in judgment before God, and they were judged according to what were written in them, according to their deeds. So stop and think about that. Unbelievers will be judged for their works according to their deeds. And it's critical, he said, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. So it doesn't matter how you're buried or what's going on. You can't escape the judgment. And, the death, and, and, and for people to say, when I die, that's it. That is not true. When you die, that's not it. When you die, it's a continuation of how you've lived this life. And over and over again, the Bible is very clear about that. And the, and the sea will give up it's dead. 
which were in them, and they were judged, again, every one of them, according to their deeds. And one last reminder. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he too was thrown into the lake of fire. Into the lake of fire. All unbelievers will be thrown. They'll join the beast, the false prophet, and Satan himself. And there's no verse in the Bible that should cause us to flee to the grace of God and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ as much as this one statement. And if your name is not found in the book of life, you will be thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible warns of this place of terrible judgment many, many, many times and challenges us to flee from the wrath of God, to repent of our old sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-evaluation time. Have you committed your life to Christ and your future to him? Death is not an accident waiting to happen. It's an appointed time by God. And then comes judgment. Are you ready for that day? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word makes it very clear for us to be ready for that day that we are to repent and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God, my prayers for those who are here today or hearing these words and their eyes are blinded by the great deceiver that you would take those scales off that you would reveal yourself to them in a real way and their need to repent to turn from sin and to turn to God and to trust in Jesus Christ his death on the cross the power of his resurrection God you tell us for those who believe in him that we become children of God to those who believe in his name. God, give us a sense of urgency for those of us who have never trusted in Christ to do so now. By praying a simple prayer, God, forgive me from a sinner. God, the last place I want to end up is the lake of fire. God, I believe that you will judge sin and I believe that I'm a sinner. So forgive me, Lord, and I believe that What your word says is true, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again from the dead, he's alive today, and he extends forgiveness to me even here and now. And Lord, I trust in him as my savior, and I thank you for what you'll do in my life. And God, as one of your children who trusted in Jesus 25 years or more ago, I thank you for what you have done in my life how you've drawn me closer to you and to your truth and how you've given me a sense of urgency that there's nothing more important in life than bringing people to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is and then to build them up in their faith. God, give us that sense of urgency that time is running short and that it is not your desire that any would perish but all would come to everlasting life. Lord, we thank you that you hear the cry of those who are broken and who repent. That there's always room in your family one more time to hear of a broken heart. 
God, we thank you. We love you. We praise you for what you're doing in our life. And we just pray that you will continue to use us and that we will continue to fulfill uh, the, uh, the, the, the works that you have designed for us to do before the foundation of the earth. And may you, as always, get all the glory and praise for everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.